open up your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. In Mark chapter two, verse 17, Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I'm gonna read that one more time because I didn't hit play on my little recording device here. Mark chapter two, verse 17. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, Jesus said. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I wanna make a clarification from Sunday morning. We were talking about leprosy, and we are talking about leprosy as a picture of sin, and there, uh, there was an email that was sent and, and a little bit of confusion about that, saying, well, wait a minute, so you're saying that when people are sick, it's because they're sinners? That's not what I said. And that's not what the word teaches. What I said was that leprosy is a picture of our sin. The way leprosy works in the body, works in the flesh. Whether it's Hansen's disease, as we discussed Sunday, and you may recall that, or leprosy, as it more likely was, different skin diseases in the Older Testament times, it doesn't make any difference. It's that picture of, of a rash that begins, it comes from within, and then begins to be seen on the outside. It gets on the clothes, it gets on the walls of the house, and it's a picture of what sin does. And throughout this whole section, as God is talking about unclean and clean, we're getting pictures in type, we're getting teaching. And, and I'll explain more even as we go tonight. But understand when Jesus says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, he's not talking about coming to heal people physically, though he did remarkable physical healing. He's talking about spiritually. I didn't call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. I wanna take those who are sick with sin and heal them that they might be righteous. And that's, that's the picture that we're being painted throughout Leviticus, but especially in this purification section of chapters 11 through 16. Now, in the book, None of These Diseases, I think I've mentioned this book to you once or twice before, by Macmillan and Stern. It's a book that looks at the biblical take on disease and the biblical prescriptions for dealing with health and hygiene and wellness and looks at some of the other ancient prescriptions. And Macmillan and Stern in this book refer to an ancient Egyptian medical document from 1500 BC. So really right about the same time as what we're reading in Leviticus. 3,500 years ago called the Ebers Papyrus. The Ebers Papyrus, quote, lists hundreds of prescriptions with an amazing array of ingredients, statue dust, beetle shells, mouse tails, cat hair, pig eyes, dog toes, breast milk, human semen, eel eyes, and goose guts. If my doctor prescribed any of that today, it would be time to get a new doctor, right? It says the best one can say about these medications is at least they were 100% natural. These were the types of things that in that day and age were being prescribed and people thought there was health and well-being in some of these quite disgusting things. By contrast, listen to what God said. Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Or in other words, he says, for Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh Rapha, I'm your physician, is the direct translation. We say, God, my healer, Yahweh Rapha. It's, it's I'm your physician, the Lord, our physician. And I like the sound of that, especially this year. The Lord, our physician. But while that is absolutely true, God is our healer, Jesus is the great physician, we would miss his entire intent if we took this section of Leviticus as a medical journal for health, disease, and remedy. Is it not that, Rick? Well, yes, it is. It was for Israel in the immediate. But for us in the spirit and for our learning and for mankind across the ages, God is doing something much bigger. So chapter 11, we saw clean and unclean animals for eating, but it wasn't about our dinner. And we saw in chapter 12, purity following childbirth, but it was more than simply a woman getting washed. 
Chapters 13 and 14, cleansing from skin disease, mildew and clothing, even mold in the walls of the house. These were things that there was a spiritual response. Remember Sunday we talked about that. It wasn't about curing the problem. It was about cleansing the person once they were cured. All of these things, again, graphic depictions of the underlying disease, which is sin in the flesh. The question comes up from time to time. Well, do you think that people get sick because they sin? And listen to me very clearly on this. Absolutely. Because if there wasn't sin in the world, there would be no corruption. If there was no corruption, we would never get sick. We get sick because there's sin in the world. That doesn't mean that you get a cold because you did something wrong that day. You know? Deb is rude to her husband and gets a cough. That's not the deal. We get sick because there is corruption in the world. There is disease because of sin in the world. And sin is the big problem. And that's why God's primary concern, as we've talked about in Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44, is be holy because I am holy. And holiness brings with it all of the goodness and purity and light and grace and joy and love that is God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Spirit of God. Be holy because I'm holy. Come into that good place. So I want you to keep that in mind. (laughs) As we open up now Leviticus 15, one of the most avoided chapters in the Bible. And understandably so, if you don't take the time to move through it. I was asked this last week, do you really have to do Leviticus 13 or 15? Can you just kind of motor through it real quickly and get on to the (laughs) next chapter? Sadly, Leviticus 15 has become the source of awkward jokes, ignorant humor, people poking fun at some of the odd things talked about here, even ridiculed as irrelevant and embarrassing. And my purpose this evening is not to embarrass anyone any more than it was God's purpose to embarrass Israel. Don't forget, it's the Lord who's speaking here. So Leviticus 15 is God giving prescription to his people and he's not joking around. He's very serious with these things. These things matter. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord our physician, is concerned throughout all of this with true spiritual healing. Because remember, we've talked about, you can heal the flesh and the person's still gonna get sick again. You can raise from the dead. Person's still gonna die again, unless it's the final, the, the first resurrection, you know, when we're caught up to be with Jesus. That's, that's different. Then we will never die. But you raise someone from the dead today, person's gonna die again. God is not so concerned with the temporary flesh. He's concerned with the eternal spirit and spiritual healing is the focus throughout. So chapter 15, beginning in verse one, Brace yourselves. The Lord also spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Now, the King James translation uses a more genteel word than discharge. Leviticus 15.2 in the King James, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh. Running isn't more genteel, but issue. Hey, we all got issues, right? If any man has a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue, he's unclean. And that makes sense to me. Our issues make us unclean. And we all got them, folks. We all have our issues. We all have our problems. We all have our discharges. Why? Because we all have flesh. We are in the flesh. And with this most sensitive now of subjects, we're reminded, and I'm gonna repeat this, but you might wanna jot it down. If it issues from the flesh, it is by nature unclean. If it issues from the flesh, it is by nature unclean, whether that is a physical issue or a soul issue or a spiritual issue, even a word I speak, if it issues from the flesh, it is by nature unclean. Which is why when Jesus came into the world, he sought to correct and redirect the mindset of the flesh to the mindset of the spirit. He does it throughout his ministry. 
Again and again, we see him redirecting people to spiritual truth, spiritual issues, because that's where the cleansing really takes place, and that's where it matters. Early on, he says to Nicodemus, John chapter three, verse six, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. He says to the Jewish disciples in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. These words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. To the Pharisees, John chapter eight, verse 15, he says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Or Matthew 16, 17, when he says to Peter, after Peter makes this glorious pronouncement, you are the Christ the son of the living God, Jesus says, blessed are you, Shimon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. What you said, Peter, was an issue of the spirit and not of the flesh. Or Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus speaking to the Sadducees says, you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. They're responding to him about marriage and divorce in a very fleshly approach, and he's like, you're, you're missing the whole power. You're in the flesh. Matthew 26, 41, in the garden, he says to Peter, and Yaakov and John, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's wholly consistent, Jesus' teaching, with Levitical Torah law, clean and unclean. All of this that we're looking at, clean and unclean, it's not just health and hygiene concerns. These are teaching tools of God to explain spirit over flesh. And it's the spirit that counts. It is the spirit that matters because again, the spirit is eternal. Now, I wanna point something out just uh, as far as the structure of Leviticus 15, and it's, it's really significant. You wouldn't see this otherwise but in this chapter, there is a chiasmic structure. If you know anything about poetry and prose, maybe you've heard the word chiasmic or a chiasm. A chiasm, especially used a lot in Hebrew poetry and Hebrew prose, Hebrew narrative, is where the second half of a passage mirrors, is the mirror image of the first half. So if you were writing it down, it'd be like saying A to B is the first half, and the second half would be B to A. So it's a mirror image of, of what happened in the first half. The whole reason is to unify the passage or the poem or the prose. So you get the first half speaking of one thing, and then the second half is equally important, equally valuable, and it mirrors, it follows right on after the first half. And that's exactly what happens in Leviticus 15. You have first a discussion of abnormal male discharge. Okay, discharge from the body that is by disease. That's the first 15 verses. That would be A, okay? Then B, you have normal male discharge. That which doesn't come of disease, it just happens, verses 16 and 17. A, B, then B in the second half would be normal female discharge, menstruation, verses nine through 24, followed then by A, the second time, abnormal female discharge, that is disease. So it begins with male disease, goes to male normality, female normality, female disease. And that's how the pa passage is laid out. Why, why is that important? Well, I'll tell you why in just a second, but note this. In between the A, B, and then B to A, in the very middle is a single verse, it's verse 18, and this connects the first half with the second half because verse 18 deals with normal male and female uncleanness together, sexual intercourse. So you've got the first half dealing with male, the middle verse dealing with male and female together, both becoming unclean, and then you have the second half dealing with female. And it's a perfect mirror image, even in terms of the offerings that are required and, and what the passage talks about. It's fascinating that way. And then in the end, the last three verses, 31, 32, and 33, just summarize the entire teaching. I point this chiasmic pattern out, not to be you know scholarly, it's not a college class that we're taking here, but to explain and to show and to remind you again that God has a perfectly balanced view of humanity, of male and of female. 
and truly, biblically, does not put the one above the other, to lord it over the other. No, God looks at male and female together as his creation. Genesis 1:27. right out of the gate, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man, speaking of male and female. Now, we've gotten all wrapped around the axle about you know, his rights and her rights and, and feminism and chauvinism and all this stuff, and, and we're so, we're so, we have so much baggage with that. The Bible doesn't. God doesn't have male-female baggage. He looks at men and women as his creation. Unique, distinct, absolutely. But as in that mirror image, both equally valued by the Lord. Yes, there are specific and, and I believe appropriate male and female roles in the church, in the family, in society, and if we would pay attention to that and walk those out, we all would be a whole lot happier than we are in this culture. A lot of the contention would go away if we would do it God's way, but he equally values men and women. And so we see this even behind the scenes in Leviticus 15, that John 1.12 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe on his name, male and female. So that's behind the scenes here. Now, we're just gonna take as our outline the weirdest outline I think I've ever given you, and that is uh, abnormal male discharge followed by male nor normal male discharge followed by normal female discharge followed by abnormal female discharge. Those are your four points if you'd like to jot them down and follow through for our outline tonight. Abnormal male discharge or disease. Verse three, continuing. This, moreover, shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. It is his uncleanness, whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge. And listen, three words here in the first couple of verses clarify that he's talking about disease. That this is a discharge of the body that is a diseased discharge. And most commentators and scholars are agreed that we're talking about venereal disease because of where the discharge comes from and because of how it's described. Let me explain the three words. The first word is just discharge. In the Hebrew, it's zov. If you're writing it down, that would be Z-O-V, zov. And the word zov translates flow, issue, or drip. It is not the word that is normally used for sperm or for semen. That would be the word zira, which we translate seed. So it's not that word, so it's not, that would be the normal discharge. This is something un, unnormal, abnormal, okay? It's the noun form that's used here, and by the way, the noun form of this word zolf is only used in this chapter in the Bible. So it's a very specific issue, if you will, no pun intended. And it's used 12 times in the chapter, discharge, both for male and female, this is an abnormal Flow, an abnormal issue of some kind. And by the way, the verb form of flow here can also mean to waste away in death. Lamentations chapter four, verse nine, better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. Pine away is zolf. So it's also a speaking of there's, there's something infectious, there's something diseased about this. The second word to note is body there in verse two. Body is basar. And basar also translates skin or flesh, but it is euphemistic among the Hebrews for the male organ, which again gives us a specificity of where this is happening, of what this is about. And then the third word is simply the word flow. R-A-R, rar in the Hebrew, and it means runny pus or seeping infection. Welcome to Wednesday night Bible study. I'm not trying to gross anyone out, but, but to help you understand and explain, this is a running infection of the male organ. Possibly, it could include UTIs, but it is most likely STDs. Venereal disease, sexually transmitted disease, chlamydia, syphilis, 
trichomoniasis, uh, gonorrhea, those are the four primary ones that are actually infecting our country today. Check this out, no one talks about this. While everyone is fretting over COVID-19 in America, 110 million Americans, one third of the population, have an incurably sexually transmitted disease. One of three people. That, that, that shocked me. That number is increasing by 20 million people every year in our country over the past decade. No one's talking about this. More than half of all Americans will have an STD in their lifetime. 50% of all new infections happen before the age of 25. 50.5% among males. 59.5% among females. So the rate of infection among females is higher than males. That also shocked me, to be honest. Although I guess it shouldn't, but you'd think it'd be about 50-50, right? In 2018, STDs hit a record high in the United States, and the highest, fastest-moving sexually transmitted disease is syphilis, which you would have thought, that's old school. That happened back, you know, 19th century stuff, right? And we, we've cured that. We've dealt with that. No, it, it was up 15% from 2017 to 2018, and though STDs hit a record high in 2019, or 2018, 2019 was worse. So even higher last year, and this year, who, who knows how that's gonna turn out. Now, it, it's possible that with COVID, and people staying home, and, and not being able to be as, as social, maybe we'll see STDs go down. Wouldn't that be ironic? God allowing a disease to slow a disease. The state with the highest rate, this is just interesting, it doesn't really mean a whole lot, but State with the highest rate of STDs for this past year, North Carolina. The year before it was Alaska, but North Carolina won out this last year. The state with the lowest rate of STDs is West Virginia, which makes sense because it's almost heaven, right? <laughs> what, our, <laughs> what our society here, and, and with all seriousness, is so casually ignoring was given serious warning by God 3,500 years ago. And prescription for dealing with this and not getting into a position where this would infect his people, Israel, who are supposed to be set apart, who are supposed to be clean. Verse four, every bed on which the person with the discharge lies becomes unclean. And everything on which he sits becomes unclean. Anyone, moreover, who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Remember, the process of being unclean means you isolate. It means you don't go to tabernacle or temple. It means you don't spend time with other people. You step back, thus giving, again, physically, hygienically, the disease or the possible illness a chance to die out before you have contact with people. So if you have contact with someone who has this discharge or a chair that he sat on or something that he touched, you back off yourself, you're unclean until evening. Just to be sure that you're not now passing it on to someone else, God is so wise. It says, verse five, did I say verse five already? Yeah, verse six, whoever sits on the thing on which the man with the discharge has been sitting shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Also, whoever touches the person with the discharge shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Or if the man with the discharge spits on the one who is clean, which, first of all, is just not very nice, he too shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Every saddle on which the person with the discharge rides becomes unclean. By the way, note this is where he's sitting. It's the saddle he rides upon. So again, this is giving us direction as to where the discharge is coming from, as to where the problem is. Whoever then touches any of the things which were under him shall be unclean until evening, and he who carries them shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Likewise, whomever the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and will be unclean until evening. 
the word once again beats science to the punch. Once again, we discover God is saying, hey, here's an idea, wash your hands. <laughs> wash your hands, wash your clothes, take a bath, man. And, and science, do you realize the concept of, of hand and body washing against germs and disease was given over 3,000 years before doctors began to realize its importance? before they began to say, oh, maybe we should wash up. It wasn't until the 19th century that physicians began to note that if they didn't wash before surgery, perhaps they might transmit disease. 3,000 years earlier, God is saying, wash your hands. Clean the disease. It's so funny, this year, what's one of the phrases we keep hearing with this spread of disease in the world? Follow the science. Follow the science. What if we followed the word of God? How much more effective might that have been and might it continue to be? Because you know what? Science, and I'm not anti-science at all. Science is about discovery, but science can only discover what God already knows and what God has already revealed. Second Peter chapter one, verse three, Peter says his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It begins by knowing him. It begins by walking with him and comprehending who he is, how he has presented himself, and then walking in obedience to that father who is Yahweh Rapha, the Lord our physician. If we'll pay attention, none of these diseases, he said, which I've put on Egypt, will infect you. Verse 12. However, an earthenware vessel, which the person with the discharge touches, shall be broken. And every wooden vessel shall be rinsed in water. Now, when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes, bathe in running water, or there it is again, living water. Get bathed, get washed in the living water, and he will become clean. Verse 14, then on the eighth day, he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall offer them one for a sin offering. Why? Because sin was likely committed, which is why he's got the disease. And one for a burnt offering. Why? To show devotion to the holy God. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord because of his discharge. And that is all the abnormal male discharge, the diseased discharge. And so once he's cleansed, uh, once he's healed of it, once the, he gets better, then he goes for the cleansing. So the, again, this is spiritual. God's purpose is a spiritual purpose. It's not about the cure, it's about getting clean. And so he's supposed to take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, two turtle doves. It's the least expensive of the sacrificial offerings. It's those seven swans of swimming that gets really pricey. Two turtle doves, <laughs> not so expensive. God is again doing something here. Note this, <coughs> pardon me. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons for your cleansing. Why? Because God is making cleanness available to all regardless of net worth. It's not about can you afford to be made clean? No, truth is none of us can, af be, can afford to be made clean. He calls rich and poor. He calls all people alike and says, look, for this to be clean, two turtle doves. Remember what Jesus said we talked about on Sunday, are two, aren't two sparrows sold for a cent? A couple of turtle doves, a couple of pigeons, cheap. Anybody can do this. And when the disease clears up again, then the concern is spiritual, the burnt offering, showing that devotion to the holy God, the sin offering, because, hey, let's be honest, STDs are transmitted by sexual sin. That's how you get it. It was, maybe this is too personal to share, but I'll share it anyway because it was not true, but Cheryl, after, I think it was the, after her, Second pregnancy, and, and, we, and we miscarried after that pregnancy, and then Hannah was born. 
Um, but after that second pregnancy, she went to the doctor and had a test, and the, and the nurse came back and said, well, you have chlamydia. I'm like, Cheryl, because there ain't any other way to get chlamydia, right? You have chlamydia. And, and so she came home, and she was in tears because she said, I, I told them I'm married to my husband, and we both have only ever been with each other, which, which is true. It's true. And, and, and we're both, we were stunned. We're like, well, this is impossible. It's impossible. And so we went back to the doctor and said, you got to retake this test because there's no, there, there literally is no possible way that she could have chlamydia. They did the test again, came back negative. It was a false positive the first time. But the point is that if someone has an STD, there has to be the ST. <laughs> right? To get to the D. You don't have the D without the ST. It's, it's a package deal. Got to have a sin offering because sin has been committed and that's what's causing the disease, what's causing the uncleanness. That's what sin does. You know what? Sin is a disease spiritually, but sin also diseases us physically. Sin choices people make will bring on disease that they wouldn't have had otherwise. I'm not saying if you sin, you automatically get sick. But sin's an ugly, gross, awful thing. Well, we come to the normal male discharge, which, by the way, also brings about uncleanness. Doesn't seem quite fair, but look at verse 16. Normal male discharge. Verse 16, now if a man has a seminal emission, he shall bathe all his body in water and be unclean until evening. As for any garment or any leather on which there is a seminal emission, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. So stop right there. This is just... It, can happen. And there's no sacrifice required. No sin offering, because this isn't sin. But wait, it says unclean. Yeah, understand, unclean doesn't necessarily mean you sinned. It just means it's not clean. God's making the distinction, as he did with leprosy, as he did with childbirth. Childbirth's not sin, but it produces a state of uncleanness. He's making the distinction between clean and unclean. So no sacrifice is, is required here. If there's a seminal emission, a normal bodily discharge of the man, there's a day of, un, you're unclean for the day. Stay back, stay away. It's healthy, it's hygienic, but it's also teaching the principle that if it issues from the flesh, it is by nature unclean. Got that? That's the normal male discharge. Then right in the middle of the chapter, verse 18, we have the normal male-female uncleanness. Watch this, verse 18, if a man lies with a woman so that there is a seminal emission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Husband and wife lie together. <laughs> They're unclean every time. And right here in the middle of the chapter, God is, again, this is not sin. He, he gave the sexual relationship to a husband and wife as a beautiful thing, as a gift, as something that we're expected to do. There's no other way we could be fruitful and multiply, right, unless we engaged in that together. But this is the crossover from the male issues. Now we come to the middle verse, and it's male and female together, and both get unclean by this act together in the marital state before we'll get on then to the, the female unclean issues, it again reminds us of the balanced view of our creator. He's dealt with the men. Before he deals with the women, he's gonna deal with the man and the woman together. Male and female, he created them, Genesis 1:27. But this also points to a right pattern, a right pattern. That is Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The Bible's so clear on this, we live in a culture that says, nah, it's not true. Not a big deal. Nah, maybe it says somewhere in the ancient dusty pages of scripture, but it's, it's, it's not a big deal. So we laid together before we were married. You know, that very act of fornication, that is premarital sex, 
it defiles the marriage bed to come. The, the marriage bed that's going to be shared has now been defiled by this act prior to. Adultery defiles the actual marriage bed because the one goes outside of the marriage to do this. Why don't we talk about this at church anymore? Why do we avoid the subject? I, I understand that it can be painful because many Christians have in life made those poor decisions. Hey, God is forgiving. God is redeeming. God still can cleanse. He does even with these issues. But if we don't honestly recognize that this is something that causes uncleanness or this is something that defiles, how can we then be cleansed? And if we don't talk about it, even as, and a lot of times I'll talk to older individuals, you know, a lot of people my age and, and people who have made big, you know, errors earlier on in life, don't like to be reminded that, yeah, I sinned big for years and years in that arena, sexual immorality. I don't like to hear that. You know what? You've got to hear it. Why? Because our generations coming up need to hear it. And I'm sorry if it offends older generations, but younger kids and teenagers and young adults are not being taught what the Bible says about a pure marriage bed. It needs to be taught. So here it is right here before us. And even when a married, now this is interesting because even when a married couple come together, according to Leviticus 15, they're unclean for the day. One day of uncleanness. They don't have to offer sacrifice. It's not a sin offering. There's not a sin that's taking place. But there is a physical uncleanness that takes place because if it issues from the flesh, it is by nature unclean. We drive that point home that God is making that clear distinction. What comes of your flesh, it's unclean. That's a reality in all of creation. Romans chapter eight, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's corruption all around. God is saying, I wanna set you free from that. Now, there's an upside here for the married couple that are unclean for the day. They can spend the day together. <laughs> That's kind of nice. Good for the marriage. Again, no sacrifice required, but, but practically speaking, practically speaking, if it's a priest especially here, or even someone in the congregation, if a man and a woman, a husband and wife have slept together and they are in that position of uncleanness, they can't go to church that day. Can't go to tabernacle, can't bring an offering of any kind that day, you're unclean, you have to stay back. If it's a priest, he would not be able to do his job. Priests were married, you know, Levitical priests had wives, that was completely acceptable. But here's the thing, sexual intercourse had to take a pause for religious devotion. You couldn't go right from one end to the other. See, because the pagan practice incorporated the two together. God said, nope, nope. Sexual stuff is not gonna be a part of my worship because we worship in spirit and in truth, not in flesh. It's about the heart and the spirit. And I want cleanness in my worship and I want purity and holiness in worship and even in priestly service. Remember back in Exodus 19, 15. He was inviting the people to come near to him as he's up on the mountain and he says to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. Make sure there is a clear separation so that there has not just been a sexual interaction the night before or the day before, which would render you unclean and impure before God. The point is you gotta be clean to approach the Lord. Gotta be, be clean to, and pure to come into his presence. And it is the same today. What, you're saying me and the wife can't, you know, on a Saturday night? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you have to be clean to come into the presence of God. Praise God, Jesus makes us clean. You are clean in Christ Jesus. 
He has made you clean in spirit and, and therefore we come before the Lord and we're not under these same restrictions and requirements because we have been made clean. By the pure and perfect blood of Jesus, we are no longer of those who are perpetually unclean, but we've been made clean by him. More on that later. By the way, there is a New Testament parallel, I probably should just point out to this, regarding marital and, and sexual, taking a sexual pause in a marriage for spiritual devotion. Note this in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. In fact, turn over there. If you've got your Bible with you, 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verse one, where Paul discusses taking a pause from sexual interaction for spiritual devotion. By the way, you cannot use this in your marriage in a negative way. You can't say, well, honey, I've been in prayer. You've been in prayer for six months. No, that doesn't. <laughs> not okay. Listen to this. Concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is Paul talking. But because of, and the word here is pornea, sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. This is God's prescription. You fulfill your duty. He's talking about your duty physically in the marriage. That's part of the deal. Husband to wife, wife to husband. And then verse four, the wife does not have authority over her own body. I've tried to use that verse before, not a good idea. Wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And then verse five, stop depriving one another. It's not a good thing in a marriage to deprive one another sexually. But he says, except by agreement for a time. Why? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, verse six, but this I say by way of concession and not of command. I'm gonna leave it to you in your marriage, but I'll tell you, in, by the wisdom of God, Paul is saying, husbands and wives, you need to take care of each other's needs, but you can take a pause. And it's actually wise to take a pause from time to time so that you can focus, so that you can devote. Note this, we are, we are clean in Christ Jesus. And God has given sexual intimacy in marriage, not just for reproduction, not just for the fun of it, but he's given us sexual intimacy to moderate our passions. However, by agreement, husbands and wives can pause for prayer can take a, a moment of disciplined devotion, can together say, let's fast for a week, sexually. Let, let's fast for two. And that's not just taking a break, that's so that we can focus on the Lord, so that we can focus on the Spirit. And what he's talking about is, it's great, spiritual discipline. I'm gonna take some time and try to really discipline, and when I, it's kinda like a, a it's like a food fast, actually, because when I fast from eating, it's not to starve myself, it's so that every time I feel a little pang of hunger, I'm reminded, think about the Lord. Pray, focus on the Lord. Boy, I, someone walks by with a burger, that looks great, hallelujah. <laughs> it turns our attention back to him when the, when the physical need says, hey, I want, then the spirit can say, hold on, I'm gonna devote. How devoted is your prayer life? How devoted is your prayer life? Now, now, married or not, if you wanna increase your devotion spiritually, fast physically. Fast physically. Deny something physical, for not, not you know, forever. I'm gonna stop this. For, deny something physical that you enjoy for a period of time and say, during this time, I'm gonna focus my heart on the Lord. And when that thing that I like physically rears up, then I'm going to, by spiritual discipline, devote myself to God. But again, Paul says, then, then come back together. Okay, so continuing on. Now we come to the second half, the, the mirrored half. We now, we've dealt with the male situations. We've dealt with male and female together. Now we come to the 
female issues. Number four in our list here, normal female discharge or uncleanness, and he's talking very specifically about the monthly uh, period. Verse 19, when a woman has a discharge, her discharge in her body is blood. She shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening whether it be on the bed or on the thing on which she is sitting, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. If a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now you might say, hang on, that's not fair. If you're a woman, you might say, I didn't choose this. I don't want this. Why why am I now unclean? He's not saying you're sinning. Keep making that distinction. He's saying this is an uncleanness. Yes, it's the normal monthly period. It is unclean. It's not sin, it's unclean, both health-wise and holiness-wise, in that if it issues from the flesh, it is by nature unclean. And more so because Brothers and sisters, we're talking about blood. And blood can carry disease very easily. And so God says, let's let's take a pause here for this week. You're unclean. You don't go to tabernacle. You don't go hanging out. But you, you stay back during that time so that you can be physically whole and healthy, but also spiritually he's drawing that distinction. Leviticus 17, 11, remember, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. But remember, when blood is pumping and flowing inside the body, it's all good. In fact, you know what? Most bodily fluids are good when they're inside us. It's when they come out of us that we're like, ooh, gross. You know, spit is not a bad thing in my mouth. It's when it goes flying out that that's a problem and someone goes, ew. I was sharing with our staff earlier today. You know, I I keep a a thing of water by my bed at night because I've gotten to the age. I guess it's just part of the deal. Three o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I'm like like that, that episode of Star Trek. I don't know if you guys remember this. Years back, the, the first Star Trek, the, the actual Star Trek, you know, with James T. Kirk. Back then, and they went on this spaceship and they find these people and they have, all have this infection and they're sitting there with their mouths open and they, they put something that looks like some kind of spinning thing and they're going, ah, like that's how I feel at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm like, I got this alien disease going on. So I gotta grab my water, you know. So I want spit at 3 a.m. in me. <laughs> not out. And that's the thing when it comes out. And it's especially true with blood because what happens, what is blood outside of the body? It's death. It's dead blood, right? So as the blood comes out, it has to be washed out. It's a good thing. It's a biological thing that God created to wash out, but it's got to come out. And as it does, it can carry, it can cause, it can be diseased. So it's unclean. And remember this, the reason I'm staying on this point for a moment is only one man ever bled pure. Only one man ever bled cleansing, healing blood. Our flow of blood is always unclean, male or female. Blood coming out of me is gonna be unclean. The blood of Christ is cleansing and it's the only blood that ever has been. But watch this. Verse 24 again. If a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. So it's not just her, it's him too, if he happens to be with her in that time. You might say, well, why would he be? I don't know. I don't know. But if he is, and God, what God is setting boundaries here. In fact, over in chapter 18, verse 19. 
He actually says, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. Over in chapter 20, verse 18. If there is a man who lies with a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness, he has laid bare her flow and she has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus, both of them shall be cut off from among their people. In other words, guys, back off. (laughs) Give her some space during this time. Some of you are looking at me like, this is so not relevant to me right now. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. Let's just get through it. God's saying, men, during this week, cool your jets, leave her be, take a cold shower if you have to, just give her her space. And the rabbis teach that this week off, so to speak, every month, actually has a renewing effect on the physical relationship of husband and wife. That's a good biblical way to look at it. So that's, that's the normal, again, the normal, um, the normal flow, the normal discharge of, of a woman. It, it's unclean, it's not sin. There's no sin requirement as far as an offering. There's no burnt offering. No, you just, you're just unclean seven days and then you're done. But we come to number five in our list here, abnormal female discharge. And listen, really dial in here because this will suddenly become, I think, quite relevant Abnormal female discharge or disease. Picking up in verse 25, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. When she becomes clean from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days, and afterward she she will be clean. And then on the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, remember that's exactly what the man had to do in his diseased discharge? Two turtle doves or two young pigeons, bring them to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge. And it's the same prescription for spiritual cleansing that the man with the diseased discharge was required. This section of Leviticus shines a bright light of grace and compassion on what otherwise might have been a particularly shameful, disgraceful, unclean, embarrassing incident in the ministry of Jesus. Turning your Bibles over to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. In Luke 8, verse 40, Jesus has just returned. He's just healed a demoniac. He's just in the midst of ministry, doing great things, changing lives, healing people, touching people. It's awesome. And as Jesus returns, Luke chapter 8, verse 40, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus. He was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying, but as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. In the parallel passage, Mark chapter five, verse 28, it says, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And it says, note this, in Mark 5, 29, immediately the the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And I point this out, this is fascinating to me. The word affliction that is used in Mark 5, 29 for this woman's situation this 12-year hemorrhage. Remember what Leviticus 15 said? 
This woman's unclean and has been unclean for 12 years. As in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity should have been seven days. No, this has been 12 years. No doctor can heal her. Spending everything she had to try and get to a place of normalcy and healing and being back in community. If you're impure and unclean, you are outside a community. This woman had been sick, untouchable, and bleeding for 12 years, and Mark refers to it as her affliction. She was healed of her affliction. This is what stuns me. The word affliction is mastigos in the Greek, and it means scourge. She was healed immediately of her scourge. Yes, it is the same word that is used for the scourging of Jesus. John 19, one, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, mastigos, same word. She had a scourge of this blood. He was scourged and his blood flowed. Hold that thought and read on. So then in verse 45, and Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? While they were all denying it, Peter said, master, (laughs) the people are crowding and pressing in on you. Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware the power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. Why is she trembling? She was unclean, and she touched him. Automatically, with anybody else, making the person she touched unclean. Why wasn't Jesus immediately unclean? Because you can't make the clean unclean in terms of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely pure. It's only one time in Jesus' entire life that he became unclean and that was on the cross. So the unclean woman touches him, gets found out, she's embarrassed. This should have completely embarrassed the rabbi as he should have rushed off and bathed and changed his clothes and, and you know, what does Jesus do? Ah, she trembling fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Healed of what? Healed of her scourge. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And straight away, Jesus sends her off. He doesn't go and wash. He doesn't feel ashamed. He's not disgusted that she reached out and touched him. Power went out from him and she was made clean. So what does Jesus do? He goes straight from here to follow Jairus to the home of the synagogue leader's daughter. On the way there, they come to him and say, she's dead, don't bother the master anymore. Jesus says, no, let's go. They go to his home. You know the story, he raises the little girl from the dead, listen to me. Leviticus 15, from Leviticus 15 to the woman with the hemorrhage to Jairus' daughter, there is a precious link. How long was the woman's bleeding? 12 years. How old was the little girl when she died? 12 years. Bonner says, how often? And Bonner's kind of a poetic commentator. He says, how often now after presenting at Jerusalem her two turtle doves, would she walk at the seashore with the daughter of Jairus, who was born the very year she took her disease and who was raised from the dead the very same day she was healed? What an amazing parallel. The 12-year-old girl and the 12-year hemorrhaging woman. And you do wonder, we have no biblical evidence or proof that they ever even met But I love that that Bonner puts that out there, that what if these two did meet and recognize I was healed on the day that you were raised from the dead and you can almost imagine, picture in your mind these two walk on the shores of the Galilee rejoicing in Yahweh Rapha who raised from the dead and who healed of this dread, horrible hemorrhage. But wait a minute. So the woman bled for 12 years that girl was 12 years old. How many tribes of Israel? 12 tribes of Israel. Isaiah chapter four, verse four says, 
when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even a smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night over all the glory will be a canopy. And that, there's your prophecy update, Deb. That is the coming kingdom. <laughs> That's the promised coming kingdom that God is gonna take the impurity of the bloodshed of Israel and he's gonna wash it clean and he's gonna spread his canopy of glory over all of Mount Zion, over Jerusalem. How is that possible? How will that happen? Zechariah chapter 13, verse one. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And that fountain has a name, and his name is Jesus. And here's the connection of it all. Jesus, who pardons all your iniquities, Psalm 103, verse three who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, verse five. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. The scourge of a woman's unclean hemorrhage the scourge of a little girl's death, the scourge of a rebellious people, and even the scourge of our own sin is all made clean by a fountain that was opened up by the scourging of Jesus who has made us clean. Well, the chapter ends. Verse 31 through 33, summing up the whole event, Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. And then this is the law of the one with the discharge for the man who has a seminal emission so that he is unclean by it and for the woman who is ill because of her menstrual impurity and for the one who has a discharge, whether male or female, or a man who lies with an unclean woman. And so he sums up the whole chapter But it's verse 31 that gives us the clear reason why this chapter has to be here. If any any pastor, and I was one of them, years ago asking the Lord, why does this chapter have to be here? Why do I have to teach through this? And if anyone ever wonders the reason for the inclusion of such intimate and a little embarrassing things in Levitical Torah law, the reason is verse 31. Listen to it again. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness. Note this, by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. This is the reason for the entire chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. This is the reason for pointing out the distinction of clean and unclean, that they would be clean so as not to defile my tabernacle, which is gonna be right in the middle of them. That suddenly we begin to realize tabernacle, it's mishkan. It means dwelling place. God wants a clean house. Is there any reason? Is it too much to ask for a holy God to have a clean house? And so the call to cleanliness and holiness and all of these purification policies becomes increasingly clear, and we come up to chapter 16 that we'll get into on Sunday morning, the law of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, listen to me, on which the tabernacle is atoned for. I thought the day of atonement was for the atonement of the people. It is. And for the tabernacle. More on that on Sunday. But note this, verse 16 of chapter 16, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of all their transgression, regard to all their sins, and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. A clean people for a clean house. Because again, a holy God wants a clean house. Praise the Lord. Jesus said, John 15, three, 
you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. God says, my dwelling place is in the midst of you. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. That's the whole reason for maintaining cleanliness and pursuing purity is that we can enter clean into the clean house of God, into the presence of God. And last thing to note, this is how it plays out for us right now. We don't come to the tabernacle. It's funny, it's interesting, in this season, we're doing all kinds of cleaning in this church. Y'all don't even know it. In between services, we have to clean. We have cleaning crew, comes in, cleans the entire sanctuary, cleans any classrooms that are used, cleans the fireside room when it's used after Sunday morning after the kids, clean after tonight, because we made this place impure, folks. No. No, but we have to come in and we have to do all this cleaning in the, in the house, but that's not, that's not the house of God. You know where the house of God is. That's right. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, your body's not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, I, I just pray that this whole concern of, of flesh versus spirit, that for our part, while you were distinguishing these things for Israel and making clear the difference, that for our part, we would understand the call to holiness is a call to a spiritual mindset and to spiritual living. That we might, Lord, at the same time, rejoice that you have made us clean. So clean, Lord, that your spirit can actually abide in us, that we become your mishkan, your dwelling place. So clean. And because we have been made clean by your pure and, for, pure and perfect blood, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to pursue clean things, to be clean in our thinking and our behavior and our choices and our relationships to be on the outside what you have made us on the inside, a people who are clean. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.